Welcome to Clean Tech Forward, a foresight podcast where we explore clean tech customers, capital, and Canada's path to net zero. Tune in to learn more about Canada's most exciting clean tech startups, industry success stories, investor insights, and academic initiatives as we accelerate the growth and impact of clean tech together. This Clean Tech Forward podcast is supported by Gowling WLG. A global leader in intellectual property law, Gowling WLG works alongside Canadian clean tech companies to develop IP strategies that maximize business opportunities and increase market share while protecting valuable innovation. From idea to investment to international expansion, Gowling WLG understands the potential of your intellectual property at every stage of growth. Visit GowlingWLG.com backslash cleantech to learn how they can support your business today. Welcome to Clean Tech Forward. I'm Jeanette Jackson, CEO of Foresight Canada. Today, we'll be kicking off our series on the export opportunities around Canadian clean tech. In this series, we'll be looking at Canada's position as a clean tech exporter, the tools available to Canadian innovators that can help them break into international markets, and exploring the pathway to becoming a global company with some of Canada's most successful clean tech ventures who have bridged that gap. Climate change is the largest issue that we have ever faced collectively as a species, and clean tech is going to be one of the keys to solving it, mitigating, and even reversing the damage done to the environment. In Canada, we have a glut of clean tech solutions, but a relatively small domestic market for these solutions. When you look at considerations like population, concentration of industry, and revenues, places like Europe are far further along than us in clean tech adoption and emissions reductions. Among the G7, Canada is seventh out of seven in terms of our emissions. We can do better. But Canada is fortunate in that we don't necessarily have the need to implement as many solutions here as urgently as they are needed elsewhere in the world, especially in countries like India, China, South Africa, that are industrializing their economies and powering that transition using heavily polluting sources of energy like coal. Despite not necessarily needing many of these solutions as urgently, the innovations being developed within our borders are still desperately needed around the world. And some would argue, myself included, that we have an obligation to provide those solutions to countries that need them most. Climate change is a problem without borders, and the solutions we use to mitigate or adapt to it should also be borderless. In recent years, it's becoming crystal clear that not only are clean technologies a necessity for countries that have implemented emissions reduction strategies, but also an enormous economic opportunity and perhaps even a moral responsibility. The global clean tech sector is heating up, no pun intended, and competition is getting more and more intense. According to Statistics Canada, the value of the environmental and clean technology product sector in Canada increased from $67.8 billion in 2020 to $73.1 billion in 2021, accounting for 2.9% of Canada's GDP. The opportunity is here and now, and Canada is well positioned to capitalize on it with some of the world's top clean tech developers operating within our borders. But we need to move quickly. To tackle these enormous challenges, we will need government support and investments into Canadian-made innovations so that we can grow the businesses that are hiring skilled workers creating domestic tax revenues, and developing the solutions we need to meet our emissions targets. We will need organizations that can facilitate market access, like the Trade Commissioner's Services, that can help Canadian cleantech entrepreneurs gain access to new markets by negotiating free trade agreements, 
reducing trade barriers, and providing information and support on foreign markets. And we will need ecosystem builders like Foresight, who offer a space for various groups, including innovators, investors, industry partners, government officials, and academia, to come together to create opportunities to collaborate on the solutions that will help us solve our most pressing climate challenges. There are many barriers facing cleantech innovators who are looking to expand globally. Operating in foreign markets comes with regulatory, infrastructural, and logistical challenges. But there are ways to navigate these challenges, which brings us to today's show. Joining me today are representatives from two amazing Canadian cleantech companies. Jocelyn Campbell is the Director of Business Development at Carbon Cure and one of the members of their team that is heavily focused on international business expansion in the Asia-Pacific region. Our other guest is Emily Hicks, the president and co-founder of FredSense Technologies. FredSense has found customers in Japan, the United States, and more recently successfully completed a pilot project in one of the emerging world leaders in water tech, Israel. Here's more from my conversation with Jocelyn Campbell. Carbon Cure is a company. We are, of course, a Canadian company. We've been around for just over 10 years, and we're really developing a, an ecosystem of solutions for concrete companies specifically to allow them to produce low carbon building materials um, to ultimately lower the embodied carbon of the built environment in their surrounding areas. So we're doing this through injecting captured carbon dioxide into concrete during the mixing process. It's our technology that we manufacture and provide that's allowing concrete producers to do this, primarily in the ready mix and precast space. It's then allowing strength benefits and therefore allowing a cement reduction. Uh, with that cement reduction comes a very large carbon reduction and some economic benefits as well to offset the cost of the actual technology. So it's a very exciting space to be in right now and it makes a lot of sense. Prior to joining Carbon Cure, it looks like you were in the energy sector, but you've made the leap to clean tech and sustainability. What did you do with the energy sector before Carbon Cure? So I worked with Imperial Oil before coming to Carbon Cure. Actually, prior to that as well, my education uh, was in science and business with the University of Waterloo. So I actually graduated with a Bachelor of Science and I specialize in environmental science. So I've always really wanted to participate in this space and really contribute. It's it's an ever-growing challenge in terms of, you know, carbon reduction. And it is really kind of my, was my end game. So in the oil and gas industry, I worked with Imperial Oil. I did support their industrial lubricants group. So really actually working with a lot of industrial customers from forestry industry, mining, uh, aviation, and cement concrete industry as well, um, helping them actually uh, reduce lubricant consumption in their heavy duty equipment, uh, which actually had an environmental benefit to it along with other benefits as well. And so my time working with some of those cement concrete manufacturers that are in Canada uh, really led me to, you know, getting into carbon gear and more in depth in terms of, in terms of the concrete production space. At Foresight, we firmly believe that the energy sector and all the related sectors that you just mentioned are key to to Canada's net zero transition and to have industry at the table being, you know, action oriented and also, quite frankly, you know, giving the clean tech sector some talent when it comes to scale and, <laughs> and you know, global development, right? So, so that's, that's awesome. How did Carbon Cure find its first international customer? 
Our first international customer, and when we consider international, we exclude the U.S. and Canada, uh, which is very much a large portion of our customer base today. Uh, but our first international customer was in Singapore with Pan United. So they were actually introduced to us by the executive director of the Singapore Green Building Council uh, during a visit to a conference in Toronto a few years ago. So this individual actually uh, learned about Carbon Cure through an investor who was also attending the same event. Uh, and ultimately, that resulted in our partnership with Pan United. Myself and the entire Foresight team are 100% committed to introducing all of the up-and-coming clean tech companies to global contacts, whether that's buyer groups, business councils, even investor networks. Uh, those are the types of relationships that can really more you know, effectively and hopefully accelerate the process of breaking down barriers with, with global expansion. Was the process of expanding to international markets intentional and driven by marketing, or was it more of a natural process where someone sought you out for product? It was definitely driven by a lot of our marketing efforts. Uh, we have an amazing marketing team. They've done a lot of really good work with webinars, a lot of digital content as well. I would say today we're directly marketing and selling to our customers, and we're also leveraging in some markets, local distributors as well, which has been really valuable. I would say the biggest focus has been on very strategic markets when we look at expanding beyond you know, Canada and the US. So looking at those strategic markets, and then on top of that, looking at very strategic first adopters um, in those given markets that will be very influential to partner with. And through, you know, over my course of, um, you know, my time with the business, we've seen those very strong first partners have been so influential and we're starting to see a lot of natural demand come from that. So I would say currently it's, there's a nice balance between, um, you know, what our company is doing in terms of outreach and education and a lot of natural demand from the markets that we've worked on or even neighboring regions as well. You know, one thing that we've experienced with different ventures and companies at the later stages who are going international is that, you know, in different countries, there's different considerations, whether it's policy or culture. What are some of the challenges that you have encountered operating in international markets and how do you overcome them? Yeah, definitely. So that's a great question. Um, there's, of course, a variety of unique challenges depending on the market uh, we're going into. So my focus specifically is really um, looking at a lot of the business development in the Asia Pacific region. Um, so that's markets that include, um, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, South Korea. Uh, it also includes Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, Singapore. It also includes Indonesia, as well as New Zealand and Australia. So as you can see, there's quite a wide range of maybe unique market environments. Uh, one common theme that I am seeing really is, you know, or a few themes is around, around regulatory, along with logistics, and then simply the demand for proof of concept in each individual market. So really getting into regulatory, this, of course, is a challenge. You know, it's all about understanding what is the existing regulatory environment and landscape. What does that look like? And from my perspective, it's not about changing that landscape. It's a really about how do we fit into it? And so we're focused in that sense around compliance. How do we comply with the requirements that either the concrete producer who's actually using our technology, what do they need in order to use our technology? And even from an end user perspective, so that's the you know engineering, construction, 
even project developer architecture firms, what do they need in order to use our technology as well? And so what's been really important is just engaging with a variety of stakeholders so that we can gain as much perspective and facts as possible. So we find the most effective path to overcoming those barriers as well. So just, yeah, that that strategic consultation um, to understand all of those factors. And um, then it really comes back to, again, that first strategic adopter who's really side by side with you in that journey to to overcome those barriers at the same time. On the logistics piece as well, um, as you may know, so we do require a captured source of carbon dioxide, and we also require a tank for that carbon dioxide to sit in at, at the concrete plant. So in some of these new markets, we're finding the logistics of the tank itself can be challenging. Um, some of the markets we're entering into actually don't have the tanks that we require available at all today. They're not even used. So that's required close collaboration with local carbon dioxide suppliers. And then naturally, the demand that we've built up in those given markets to either have those local suppliers develop solutions for us or start to build an inventory for us as well. For the tanks on the permitting side, some of the markets we're entering into have very strict health and safety permitting requirements. And again, it just requires a lot of understanding and collaboration with the the same local parties um, to kind of get over those barriers. Then the last, the third one, just naturally the demand for proof of concept. And I think this really applies to any brand new market you're entering into and any technology is Every customer wants to see um, your solution or your technology work in their market with their technology, with their materials, and that's very understandable. We do know that our technology has worked in hundreds of plants in over 30 countries around the world, but we do still need to address that, um, that concern that they might have. Depending on why they are hesitant, there could be a variety of tools we could leverage. So whether that be commercially, something that we, we offer them commercially to address that risk, possibly leveraging the successful customers we already have to facilitate, you know, discussions or plant tours. And then one thing that I'm really excited about as well is our lab has developed a pre-implementation testing plan that really helps provide a predictable result and benefits on the, both the economic and environmental side. And so we can share that with our customers so that they feel more comfortable taking that next step with us. It sounds like case studies reference customers and just, you know, overall due diligence on both the buyer side and your side, just to make sure that a successful engagement can happen is is some of the key learnings. Is there one overarching lesson that you've learned from dealing with so many 30 different countries and hundreds <laughs> of different customers? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's so much interest from all over the world, even in markets that we're not currently you know, make having our technology available to, but I think it's all about the importance of strategically partnering with the right first adopter or first adopters in a given market. They're generally very committed to to change and innovation. Um, they're very well connected in those markets as well, and they're generally just leaders in the market. So, whether it be you know word of mouth, the relationships they already have, they're so influential, and and it's really looked at like a partnership. So you want that partnership and you want a customer that will kind of help take your technology to market and and make it successful. We believe that there are some pretty good tools and programs here in Canada to support entrepreneurs. Do you have a list of some of these tools or programs that are available to Canadian entrepreneurs that have helped, you know, yourself and the entire Carbon Cure team? 
Yeah, there's definitely quite a variety. Um, I think we've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to benefit from some of these tools. So specifically, I know for the Southeast Asia region, we receive subsidy from Elemental Accelerator. Um, they are a Hawaii-based clean tech accelerator program with funding from the U.S. Navy. We've also received really good support from the Canadian Trade Commissioner. Um, even prior to my time with Carbon Cure, they were extremely helpful, and I'm continuously working with them in several countries. So they've been very valuable, very supportive with just you know knowledge sharing about the given market, but also facilitating local introductions with a variety of stakeholders that are very important. And then um, very helpful with uh, language barriers where, where needed. As a company that's really paving the way for up-and-coming Canadian clean tech companies, you're getting sort of a landscape analysis on how Canada's faring globally as an exporter of clean tech. What do you think about Canada's current position? I think Canada's in a really good position in terms of being a leader on the global stage in terms of climate tech and that industry as a whole. Specifically, if you look at the carbon removal space, there's so many amazing companies that are on the leading edge coming out of Canada. Uh, when you look at North America as a whole as well, there's so many more companies as well. And, and it's really just increasing in terms of the technologies and the solutions that, that are becoming available. When you look at the most uh, re recently announced list of top 100 international clean tech companies, 12 of those are Canadian. And so that really speaks volumes, I think. I think when a lot of people think of Canada, they think of green, clean tech, um, environmental initiatives. And I think that that's definitely aligned with, with the trends. And I think a lot of that has really been due to the support of organizations like Foresight, like Elemental, among others, that have really helped propel companies like ours and, and really the whole industry in Canada as a whole forward. So we've talked about a lot of the positives and different programs for support, trade commissioner services, etc. What's missing? Is there something more that we can do that can really enable Canada to keep the pace and stay in that leadership role as we expand exports to the global clean tech market? I think just encouraging a lot of that cross-country, cross-market international um, business interaction. Um, I know I've leaned on the Canadian Trade Commission contacts in local regions a lot. And I think sometimes they'll have um, trade missions into different countries or in Canada as well, welcoming other companies from different countries here to really facilitate those business-to-business -business, um, discussions with very targeted object objectives. So I think as much as we can do to facilitate those cross-country discussions and bringing companies and countries together that might not realize um, that we have a solution for them or vice versa, um, I think closing that gap is, is hugely valuable. I think what Jocelyn just touched on is an area of strength for Canada. The Government of Canada has established several climate-focused institutions that are there to help clean tech development and to help clean tech entrepreneurs export their solutions. Canada's Clean Growth Hub has many resources for Canadian companies, including funding opportunities, technical assistance to help companies grow and scale their operations, and access to experts who can offer advice and insights into foreign markets. As Jocelyn mentioned, Global Affairs Canada's Trade Commissioner Service offers Canadian clean tech companies with access to international trade expertise and support, and can provide market insights, facilitate introductions to potential customers and partners, and can help navigate foreign regulations and procedures. Export Development Canada, or EDC, provides Canadian exports with access to working capital and finance solutions to help them grow their business and expand into new markets, 
with market intelligence and insights on foreign markets to help them make informed decisions about which markets to enter and how to enter them. And finally, access to a network of international contacts and business opportunities through its global trade network. The Government of Canada has deployed a fairly effective set of resources for clean tech innovators to take advantage of that can help them navigate international markets. The resources and expertise they need to operate in the fast-paced world of international business is readily available. Organizations like ours are also providing insights into global markets. In April 2021, Foresight and our partners at Carbon Management Canada came together to collaborate on a report titled Exporting CCUS Technology, an International Business Development Strategy for Canadian Carbon Capture, Utilization and Storage Companies. This report is a guide for Canadian CCUS technology companies, specifically SMEs or small and medium-sized enterprises, to access key global markets where there has been significant development of the CCUS sector and inform the creation of business export plans. You can find out more about it on our website at foresightcac.com backslash reports. There are a ton of resources available to Canadian exporters, but there are still some things that companies should do when considering exploring opportunities outside of Canada. Here's some advice from Jocelyn on what she has learned from going through the experience herself. I would say being really strategic in terms of focus and scope of expansion into new markets rather than focusing on too many at once. I think while we would love to be everywhere all at once really quickly. And it, you know, there's a global opportunity with our technology of over, you know, um, over 100,000 concrete plants around the world. We found it's, we've been most successful when we have that really narrow streamlined focus. So I think that's one thing that's really important. Um, you know, our biggest challenge really is time. We need to do as much as soon as possible. And so it is really tempting to try and sell um, to anyone that reaches out, even if there is that natural demand. But that focus is really important. Uh, what we found with with that focus and, and therefore the success we found is there's a lot of um, natural demand then that arises from, you know, word of mouth or from neighboring regions as well to allow us to scale more quickly. The second point I would make as well is just having a really clear internal strategy around who is focused on doing what and which markets. I think it's uh, easy to fall into the trap of, you know, having one person or one team do everything, but I think it's better to have specialists rather than, um, than generalists. And so with me in this current position now, just focusing a lot on our business in Asia Pacific, I think that allows me to specialize a little bit more in the given markets uh, with my team to understand what is the best path to um, being successful in those markets. And then I'd say another really is just being adaptive to any evolving external conditions. I think that's one of the best strategies to have, being able to adjust and adapt accordingly. And then I'll say the last piece is to any entrepreneurs is really just don't hesitate to reach out for expertise um, from organizations like Foresight Canada or, you know, the local Canadian Trade Commissioner program as well. Taking a well-planned, focused, and strategic approach to your international expansion are fantastic tips for innovators to follow. It's sage advice from one of Canada's top exporters. Our next guest is Emily Hicks, the president and co-founder of FredSense Technologies. FredSense is an interesting case study in international expansion, as their technology, portable kits for testing contaminants and water sources, is used to solve problems that municipalities in Canada typically don't face. From the get-go, FredSense technology has been more suited to customers in places like the U.S., Asia, and the Middle East. 
and they're not alone in finding the majority of their customers outside of Canada. Natural Resources Canada recently published its 2022 cleantech industry survey results. That report found that 67% of Canadian cleantech firms that do export make at least half of their sales abroad, and that the U.S. is the main destination for 80% of the cleantech firms that export. The domestic market for many cleantech solutions is relatively small, and if Canadian companies want to compete, they have to look outside of their borders for clientele. Here's more from Emily on what FredSense does and how they found their first international customer. At FredSense, we essentially create portable instruments for doing water chemistry analysis in the field. So we create units that an end user could be able to use to measure really specific uh, parameters related to water quality. And we generally focus on things that are harder to detect where there aren't really good off-the-shelf solutions right now, but where immediacy of data is really critical. So our first commercial product that we started with was for trace arsenic analysis. And arsenic is a really big problem for a number of utilities. And they have active treatment systems in place, but really struggle to understand what those treatment systems look like. Is there breakthrough happening? Do they need to change the media? Are they over-remediating? Because they're waiting for lab results, which can take several weeks to months uh, to get data back. And so we really started with this idea of could we use biology and genetically modified organisms to be able to detect different parameters really specifically and accurately and use those to create portable devices that allow these end users to be able to get much faster access to the information that they need, which allows them to be able to make actionable decisions. Yes, I believe that data is power. And of course, the faster we can get industry, municipalities and individuals to move towards action on the net zero pathway, those things get myself and the entire Foresight team pretty excited. You know, if you were to break it down into the top few applications for your technology in terms of specific market segments, are there some specific applications that you'd highlight? You know, for us, one of the things we learned, you know, fairly early on in the journey was really that, you know, we need to find places where there's you know, the data can actually make a really big difference. And so really we're focused on places where there is the potential for treatment systems um, or there's, you know, a need to be able to get data to make decisions. So we work a lot right now with utilities that need to be able to understand what their treatment systems look like or treatment providers themselves that are looking to be able to understand what's happening, optimize their system and waiting for lab results is just way too slow to do that. And uh, before we dig into your international expansion, do you want to share sort of anything about your experience in terms of accessing Canadian customers or the domestic market? Well, to be really honest, we really haven't done a lot of work domestically here in Canada. So we've done a little bit of work with a couple companies on arsenic. And more recently, we have some Uh, exciting work happening on PFAS sensing also in Canada. But really for us, the primary customer base has been always been international. And the reason for that is really just market driven that we started our first commercial sensor for arsenic analysis, which is a huge problem in many city centers in the US. So California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, but it's really not so big of an issue in the habitable parts of habitable parts of Canada. It's a big problem up north, but not really where there's city centers. So we always kind of started with a lot more of a US focus. Um, for sure, and haven't done a whole lot of domestic stuff right at this moment. As you're developing the technology and doing a landscape analysis on where you're going to tackle your first customer, how did you go about finding your first international customer? 
Yeah. So I think really our first, our very first international customer we found uh, kind of through a fluke, we had a button on our website that said that we were looking for pilot partners and we had an international customer click that button and it really fit the use case. And they were willing to be a really early adopter at that moment because the technology was definitely not not in a commercial state in any way, shape or form, um, but they were really, really interested. And so it was kind of just a, a chance that we ended up getting connected with them really early on and they became a really great uh, early customer for us. So would you say that in terms of your getting your first customer, that it was driven by your marketing team uh, and that these companies found you just from being, you know, having the right marketing and website and keywords and all that stuff? I mean, I would say, you know, the number of times that companies just maybe, you know, found our website and then found us is, you know, pretty low. I would say that was kind of a a really great um you know, great event that happened for us. I would say other customers that we found, you know, more related to, you know, going to key conferences, you know, being able to identify, you know, some of these events that we need to go to, having connections in some of these markets. You know, there have been some different groups that have helped us kind of make some of those connections. And so I'd say that's been more the route that we've had versus, you know, people just kind of reaching out to us through a, you know, cold email through the website. Are there certain organizations or Uh, connections that you built as an early stage entrepreneur that have helped you establish those new relationships? I think definitely for us, as we were starting in, you know, to the water sector itself, some of the connections we built through different programs. So we were part of the Imagine H2O Accelerator. We've also been part of Elemental Accelerator. And those have been really great, um, you know, really sector specific programs that have allowed us to make a lot of connections to potential customers, you know, and sometimes even offering pilot funding for some of those customers. And so that's been really, really helpful. And also some programs, you know, if you're going to a conference, there's been some great programs where, you know, groups will help you set up meetings, you know, they'll have access to certain customer groups, they'll offer, you know, events and stuff like that, discounted booth space, things like that, that all kind of helps you start to get into that network and start to meet some of these potential customers and have, you know, the support of a, you know, an accelerator or another program's name behind you as well, especially when you're a, you know, really small company that nobody's really heard about before. You recently completed a pilot project in Israel. How did that partnership come to be? And can you share any details on that project? Sure. So that was a really interesting project for us. It was funded by Elemental Accelerator, and it was a deployment that we did uh, with another company in the Elemental portfolio called CanDo, and they do a lot of wastewater analysis based in Israel. And so during the pandemic, we had pivoted to doing COVID-19 analysis in wastewater. And so it was a really nice fit that we could work with this Israeli company to do some, some wastewater analysis in Israel. So that was kind of a proof of concept on the technology funded by Elemental and was a really interesting opportunity for us to explore a market that we hadn't hadn't ever considered previously. What role do ecosystem builders like Foresight play in the process of becoming a global exporter of clean tech? I think there's a lot of room for ecosystem builders to help small companies a, a ton as they're starting to think about international expansion. And I think, you know, the networking piece you've already talked about, which is obviously a really important one, you know, introductions to some of these customers, access to events and other things where people can meet some of these potential customers are huge. I know there's also a lot of room for, you know, support for companies on just navigating some of the logistics. We've been really hot, really fortunate to have some support um, through another program that we were in. We're able to get 
in touch with a person in Japan, for example, when we were running a pilot there. And that was quite a challenge for us because we'd never done anything in the Japanese market before. It was during COVID, so there was no potential to, to travel there or do anything like that. And so we were able to use you know, our network to get in touch with someone in Japan that could help us be that you know, boots on the ground and really make sure that the pilot was successful. And so I think there's just a lot of you know, learnings that small companies have to go through and the more that you know, people in the ecosystem can help support with that provide access to resources and just learnings of how to kind of navigate some of these situations is tremendously helpful. You know, I uh, traveled quite a bit and I actually did part of my degree in uh, international business. And one of the things that we always talked about was sort of cultural differences and just ways of doing business generally. What are some of the challenges you encounter while operating in international markets and how do you overcome them? Yeah, there's been, you know, a number of challenges that we've experienced, um, you know, and kind of have had varying, you know, success in overcoming them. I think one that I really didn't consider that much was just some of the cultural differences and how that would translate to how we were doing some of this work. And so, for example, when we were working in Japan, you know, it was during COVID. And so we were very used to sending our staff to do a pilot. They'd physically go in person, meet with the people on the ground, show them how to use it. But none of that was possible in this case. Um, and so we were going to use a lot of the resources that we created for the U.S. market, which is a lot of, you know, user guides that are kind of very pictorial. You know, we have kind of some, you know, cartoons almost that show you how to do each step. It's really simplified. We try to make it as easy as possible. But actually, the users in Japan really wanted to read the full user guide, which we assume nobody in the American market ever wants to read. But they really wanted, you know, text documents and things like that. And through a partner that we were working with, he helped us, you know, kind of develop more of that side of things because they really wanted a written guide. That was kind of what they what they were expecting to see. And so there's just differences in terms of even the resources that we were providing to accompany our product, they had a different expectation of what would be useful to them versus what we had, you know, assumed would be useful. And so that was something we're having those local connections to help kind of translate some of that information and make sure that you're, you know, approaching it in the right way is super, super helpful. Um, You know, some of the other big challenges, you know, especially with Japan, but also Israel a little bit was just you know, how do you physically get stuff there? You know, we've kind of figured out how to ship our product to the U.S. and get it through customs and all that kind of stuff. But we had some really unforeseen challenges with Japan where we send, you know, part of our sampling kit has some, you know, plastic uh, syringes, essentially, and they don't have needles or anything. But, you know, that's what the user uses to take a water sample and put it into our cartridge. And it turns out that, you know, any kind of syringe, you actually can't get into Japan without a specific medical license, because even if it's not used for medical purposes, you can't just ship that, you know, with regular documentation, which we obviously had no idea. So our package got stuck in customs um, actually forever. We never, never got it back. (laughs) Um, But we had to kind of figure out that that was an issue. We had no idea. You know, it took a long time to kind of figure out what was the problem. We had a local contact that was able to help us figure out that that was the thing, you know, so we were able to then source some, you know, some of these syringes in Japan, you know, so that the local um, contact could purchase those and we didn't have to import them. So there's all sorts of just challenges around, you know, the logistics of doing some of this stuff that, you know, you don't really know until you kind of go down that route. Um, and having people that can help guide you through that is is really helpful. And so when you went to ship stuff to Israel, we had 
a connection there that was able to really walk us through, you know, these, this is what you need to do. This is what's allowed to be shipped to Israel. This is what's not, this is how you fill out the paperwork, you know, just some of those things to make sure that you, you know, we didn't have our package stuck in customs for, for weeks on end and delay some of the pilot work that we were trying to do. If you were to summarize, you know, two or three of your biggest lessons learned from your experience so far, what would it be? You know, one of them is really just the importance of, you know, local connections that maybe aren't your customer, but could help, um, you know, help work with your customer. So in our, you know, work with Japan, we're able to identify kind of a independent consultant that, you know, understood how the market worked in Japan, could speak Japanese, could talk to the client, you know, kind of just make sure that everything was going smoothly. And so that if we had a problem with anything from, you know, a shipment to, you know, creating some of these resources, they were able to really help kind of facilitate that and be a bit of a, you know, friendly face to make sure that things were, you know, going to be well received on the client end and that we weren't, you know, offending them or, you know, just not having the right stuff put together. And so that was really, I think, one of the big things is just kind of having that that presence or, or someone that just has experience doing that before just makes it so, so, so much easier. You know, I think the second is really just to, you know, do your research and and don't assume that things are going to be exactly the same as they are here. So, you know, from cultural differences to how people want to see the materials, you know, to just things like import, export, you know, we really just assumed that if we had paperwork that worked for the U.S., you know, obviously that will work for Japan as well. And that really was not the case. And so just trying to, you know, be as aware as you can of what, you know, things are going to look like on that side and trying to just be, you know, be as as prepared as you possibly can. I think those are, you know, maybe the two biggest lessons we've had. And, you know, the third is just that these things always take way longer than, you know, you think that they're going to and that there's always going to be more, more challenge, more cost, you know, more, you know, hoops you have to jump through. It's definitely not, you know, simple and straightforward, but you know, it's, uh, it's exciting to be able to do, you know, have an impact, I think, you know, abroad, and especially depending on what you're working on, you know, sometimes the need can be really great, which, you know, is a really good reason to be exploring some of these markets. What do you think of Canada's current position as an exporter of clean tech? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, I don't really claim to be, you know, an expert at all in terms of, you know, what, what Canada's exporting today. But, you know, I know that, you know, there's a lot of focus on clean tech happening in Canada right now, you know, from, you know, emissions reduction, you know, all sorts of interesting, you know, new materials, you know, I think about carbon cure in, uh, in BC, Um you know, I think there's just a lot of uh, a lot of innovation that's happening. You know, we're really focused on the water sector, and there's definitely a ton of innovation happening there. But it you know really spans the the scope of clean tech, and so I think there's a lot of potential, especially with some of the funding that's going into clean tech. A lot of the excitement happening around it, and you know, it's kind of an industry that you know, despite the pandemic, despite you know external forces that might be happening, it's kind of still you know still so critical, and that's that's really not going to change. Do you think there are one or two things, whether it's programmatic or investments or some policy, something that the Canadian government can do to really enable ventures like yourself to lead in exports globally? Yeah, you know, I think from a, a program standpoint, just more, um, you know, more programs that can help connect, you know, Canadian companies to potential you know, opportunities abroad, I think can be tremendously helpful. You know, some of the, you know, opportunities that we've had have kind of come through really specific programs that we've been part of, where we've been able to kind of meet these, you know, companies and kind of determine that there's fit. And so I think some of those can be really helpful. Um, And, you know, specifically programs that kind of focus on, 
being able to make, you know, impactful connections. And so I know there's, you know, lots of missions and, you know, groups that kind of go, you know, kind of figure out what the market looks like in different places. But I think the more programs that can really focus on fostering some of those relationships and kind of building, you know, networks, <clears throat> some of these areas is super helpful. And, you know, as a small company, funding is, is always something that, you know, companies are looking for. And I think international expansion is definitely something that can be costly. And for a small company, that's something that can be you know, a big barrier to adopting, even if there is a big, you know, market opportunity in another part of the world, it just, you know, can feel a little bit like that's really, really expensive. And so I think the more funding opportunities that can kind of help support small businesses and starting to, you know, overcome some of those barriers and really access those markets is also super needed. If you could give any piece of advice to another Canadian entrepreneur who is ready to expand beyond their domestic market, what would you tell them? I would really just say, you know, try to find local connections, find people that have, you know, done this before, have experience in that marketplace, you know, can speak the language if that's, you know, something of concern and can really just help you navigate it. And, you know, I think just be prepared that it is going to take a whole lot longer than you think it's going to take and everything from just getting, you know, agreements and NDAs in place to actually, you know, getting potential equipment, you know, to a different country and being able to, you know, demonstrate the impact there. It all just takes, you know, a lot, a lot longer than you think. And so make sure that you're really being prepared for that. But, you know, can be a tremendous opportunity to expand your business and and demonstrate impact in a, a whole new market. Those local connections and international markets that both of our guests mentioned today are crucial for finding not only customers, but the right customers. Having customers with strong ESG mandates that will champion your technology and their local sphere of influence can be game changing as your team seeks to expand and scale its operations in a given region. Ecosystem builders like Foresight can help you with exactly that. Our industry matchmaking challenges can connect you with international partners, and our network of more than 200 executives and residents and mentors have connections around the world and can facilitate those relationships. The Enercan study I mentioned earlier in this episode found that the number one in-kind need for Canadian clean tech ventures is industry connections. So far, Foresight has run over 55 industry matchmaking challenges, many of which have been with international partners. Our challenges not only facilitate those industry connections, but accelerate clean tech adoption among industry partners as well. As Canadians, we're in a fortunate position to have access to the resources, talent, and solutions that will help us develop, deploy, and scale clean tech solutions for the world's most pressing climate challenges. But climate change is a problem without borders, and many countries around the world need access to the solutions that our innovators are developing. Positioning Canada as a global leader in cleantech exports is not only beneficial to our own economy, but it is also beneficial to the world as a whole as we shift towards a net zero future. Thank you so much for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cleantech Forward podcast wherever you listen and to share this episode with your colleagues and friends. Next month, we'll be back for our next episode on Canada's position as a global exporter of clean tech solutions, speaking with some of our international partners to learn more about the opportunities those relationships offer to Canadian innovators. I look forward to seeing you there. To learn more about Foresight's programs, events, and more, visit us at foresightcac.com or follow us on social at foresightcac.com.